And I would invite you this morning to turn to Acts chapter 15. We're going to read verses 1 through 31 this morning. Uh, And this morning, as you turn to Acts chapter 15, I want to tell you the difference uh, between two ministries. One is Reformed University Fellowship, and the other is Reformed Christian Fellowship. Uh, So Reformed University Fellowship is a ministry of the Presbyterian Church in America, the PCA. It's one of our sister denominations. It's a It's a college campus ministry that's found on colleges and universities across the United States. They even minister to two of our members here who are attending different colleges. Uh, They're financially supported by dozens and dozens of congregations, including our own. They're uh, run by ordained pastors who are held accountable to their presbyteries for the ministries that they run. They've ministered to thousands and thousands of college students over the years. And over the years, they've helped mature Christians in the faith, and they've helped bring non-believers to faith. Well, that sounds great, right? So what makes RUF, Reformed University Fellowship, different from Reformed Christian Fellowship? Well, the difference is Reformed Christian Fellowship ministered to five people. It brought no one to faith, and it doesn't exist anymore. I started uh, Reformed Christian Fellowship in college. We had no affiliation with any church. We had no structure. We had no officers. We had no plan. And when I left a year after founding it, if you can say it that way, it died. Because unlike RUF, there was no structure to keep it going. There's no leaders to move it forward or to help fix or figure out issues. There's no connection outside of itself for accountability, for support, or for guidance which is to say the big difference between Reformed University Fellowship and Reformed Christian Fellowship is institutional structure and connection. And by the way, if you study history at all, you know that institutional structure and connection are absolutely necessary if something is going to continue over time and grow. And that idea of institutional structure is what our sermon is about this morning. What is Presbyterianism? Presbyterianism is a way of creating institutional structure in the church that that I believe is biblically faithful and as such is good and helpful in growing the church, maturing believers, and passing on the faith not only to those outside the walls but to the next generation who are here in the chairs this morning. Or at least it, it can be all of that. Obviously an institution can become corrupt, it can become broken, it can become in need of reformed, Uh, But that's not what this sermon is about. This sermon is about why we believe that Presbyterianism as an idea and as a structure is a biblically faithful way to structure the institution of the church for God's glory and for our good. Presbyterianism comes from the Greek word for elder, presbyteros. And what I hope we see this morning from Acts chapter 15 is that Presbyterianism is an institutional team of elders who work together to help the church follow Jesus. Presbyterianism is an institutional team of elders who work together to help the church follow Jesus. And we're going to see that by looking at this very heated debate that came up during the church's early life over uh, what Gentile converts needed to do once they joined the church. And we're going to look at how the institutional structure of the church helped them navigate 
this really intense debate and help them align the church more faithfully to Jesus and his word. So we're going to look at first the issue. What does it look like to follow Jesus right now? That'll be verses 1 through 3. We'll look at the debate. That'll be verses 5 through 21. Then the answer, verses 22 to 31. And then finally, I'll conclude with kind of just two final thoughts. Uh, so let's read Acts chapter 15, verses 1 through 31. Pray, and then we'll start our reflection this morning. Uh, it's a little long, but I think it's interesting. Uh, so it's a, it's, it's a really fun story. So give now your attention to God's word. To Acts chapter 15, verse 1. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you're circumcised according to the tradition of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the hearts, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that they will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. And all the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Paul and Barnabas as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they had finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophet agree, just as it is written, After this I will return, and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it. And the remnant of mankind may seek that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord, and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols, and from sexual immorality, and from what has been strangled, and from the blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he has read every Sabbath in the synagogues. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas, called Barsabbas, and Silas, leading men among the brothers, with the following letter. The brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who are, in the, who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, 
Greetings. Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words, unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions, it, would, it has seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who risked their lives for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas themselves, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from the blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourself from these things, you will do well. Farewell. So they were sent off. So when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch and having gathered the congregation there, or the church, literally what it says, they delivered the letter. And when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. Thus far the reading of God's own word. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we thank you for this word, which we know that you have given for our instruction and for our edification. But Lord, we know that if your spirit does not go forth with your word, that it will be simply a resounding gong and a clanging cymbal to us. So Father, we pray that your spirit now will give us minds to understand your word, ears to hear it, and hearts to believe it. And Father, we pray that uh, the words of my mouth is your preacher, and that the meditation of all our hearts as those gathered here and called to hear and respond to your word, that it would all be pleasing in your sight. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> so the first thing we need to consider this morning is the issue that sparked this debate. We're told uh, that while Paul and Barnabas were planting churches in Antioch, that's chapter 25, verse 25 of chapter 14, that in verse 1, some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the tradition of Moses, you cannot be saved. So the issue was whether or not Gentile Christians needed to be circumcised in order to be saved. Now at first reading, uh, we probably don't understand why that claim would cause all of this debate and traveling and letters. I mean, isn't the answer just, well, no, that's obviously not true. Well, the reality was the answer wasn't obvious. Not because heresy had blinded the church or there was a, a different gospel being preached by these men. No, the answer was unclear because if we can sort of step back in time to a different moment in history... At this point in church history, what we call the church and the synagogue had not yet split apart. And the church was living in a context where she had to wrestle with both the biblical distinction between Jews and Gentiles, and a Gentile is just everyone who is not a Jew, and also with 500 years of theological debates within what we now call Judaism about what it meant for Gentiles to convert and worship the God of the Bible. And without getting too far into the weeds, which I totally want to do, but I'm not going to do, uh, at this point in history, Jews had a variety of different ways of thinking about what it meant for Gentiles to convert to the worship of the God of the Bible. One of which we see in our passage this morning, which was that the Gentiles needed to be circumcised and sort of adopt Jewish identity. And since Christianity preaches the arrival of God's Jewish Messiah, 
and receives the Old Testament as our authoritative scripture. And since the church was intentionally expanding its community to include not only Jews, but Gentiles as believers in that Jewish Messiah, the question became, within that particular context, does Jesus want Gentile converts to be circumcised? And the answer just wasn't immediately obvious. Paul and Barnabas said no, but some said yes, like these men who had come from Judea. So at this point uh, in history, the issue here is not actually heresy. The issue is genuine confusion and disagreement about what it looked like for Gentiles to follow Jesus right now. Given past practice and given all the changes Jesus brought, what does it look like to live faithfully for Jesus now? That was the question. And I say that because when you're talking about church debates, it's important for us to see that not every debate is about exposing wolves in sheep's clothing. There can be genuine confusion and disagreement over what faithful practice looks like, and that was the case here. And that disagreement was intractable in this congregation. So look at what happens. In verse 2, we're told that after a debate that couldn't get resolved, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem and to the, to the apostles and elders about this question. So in our church, and in our churches and our denomination, we have what's called a session, which is all the ordained elders of that church. Sometimes issues arise in a body that are important and don't have any clear answer. And the debate is causing division and pain within the congregation. And when that happens, the elders, the session, can bring the issue to what we call the presbytery or the general assembly. And just so you know, a presbytery is all the churches in a particular geographical region. So our presbytery is the Presbytery of Michigan on Ontario. So it's all the OPC churches in Michigan, all the OPC churches in Ontario, Canada, and us and our church plant in northern, northwest Indiana. We just kind of got hooked in with the rest of them. And then the General Assembly are all the churches in our denomination together. Presbyterians have set ourselves up so that we can kind of mirror what we see happening here in Acts chapter 15. When divisive issues arise, our elders could ask the presbytery for guidance. And if that doesn't help, our presbytery could ask the General Assembly for guidance. Uh, which is why, and I'll point this out again as we go, you'll see that Luke, who's the author of Acts, say that the church sent representatives to the church and that the church wrote back to the churches. You see, everything here is called the church. The congregation's called the church. The group of people traveling is called the church. They're welcomed by the church. The church sends a letter back to the churches. It's all one institutional whole. It's all a connected group of believers and leaders. It's an institution working together to bring clarity to this very important question of discipleship. Okay, so the issue is, do Gentile Christians need to be circumcised? Let's now look briefly at the debate. So in verses 3 through 4, we hear a little about the group's travels. We hear their missionary reports along the way. And then we get to verses 5 through 7. And we read this. 
But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter, and after there had been much debate, and I'll just stop there. So it's good for us to see, I think, that those who disagreed with Paul and Barnabas are called explicitly believers, right? Again, this is not heresy. This is a genuine disagreement among Christians. And I think it's also helpful to notice that there was much debate on this. And that can mean that the debate just went on forever or that it was super heated or both. And I can tell you, as a Presbyterian, it was absolutely both. Everyone got up and said the same speech, only every time they got up, they just said it more mad than the last guy. I've never done that. I'm completely, you know, exonerated from the accusations I make of other people. Uh, and one more thing to notice, I think this is good to notice, the apostles didn't just resolve this debate. Sometimes I think we think, if we could just like pull the apostles forward in time, that we would have all the answers to our discipleship questions my friends, that wasn't even the case in their own time. In fact, it's not even clear that the apostles were all on the same side, at least at first, on this issue. And I bring that up because we need to see that questions of discipleship and loyalty to Jesus and doing what's best are not always obvious. There's real complexity and real difficulty because as a general rule, Christian leaders, elders in our case, they want to do what's right, but that right thing is not always immediately clear. And this is also the value of having elders in a church. It's why God set up leaders, because there are things that are not clear that take prayerful debate and discussion and work to figure out how to follow Jesus. And that was the case here. Though eventually the church does land on a decision, doesn't it? And I wanted to take just a, a quick big picture look at how they achieved clarity and arrive at their decision. So first, it's important for us to see that they faced what Jesus was actually doing among them, how Jesus was acting in real time in their body. That's the middle of verse 7 through verse 9. So Peter stood up, verse 7, middle of verse 7, and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel, and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Peter brings up both his mission and the kind of Gentile conversion Jesus has already blessed in the past that you can read about earlier on in Acts. And his point is, I was appointed to preach to the Gentiles so that they would hear and believe. I wasn't appointed to circumcise them into the faith. I was appointed to preach them into the faith. And you also know that that ministry was blessed because like us circumcised Jewish Christians, uncircumcised Gentile Christians also received the Holy Spirit, which shows that our relationship to Jesus as circumcised Jewish Christians and their relationship to Jesus as uncircumcised Gentile Christians are equally valid in God's sight. My ministry bore the fruit of conversion that Jesus blessed without 
circumcision. Now, even though there's a biblical argument, which we're going to talk about in a minute, I know that arguments from experience can make us uncomfortable, even if it's the Apostle Peter who's making the argument. Uh, let me just say, I share that discomfort. Uh, but when there is a huge divisive debate about what the Bible says, like there was in this case, sometimes, not every time, but sometimes a way forward into a better understanding of what the Bible says is to ask, what is Jesus blessing? What is actually growing the church numerically? Because, you know, missionary work is an important goal of the church, but also spiritually, maybe even especially spiritually. What is actually conforming people into the image of Christ? And by the way, in verse 12, when we read, and all the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done among them to the Gentiles, or through them among the Gentiles. This is just Paul and Barnabas jumping on to the same point, right? It's not just Peter's ministry to the Gentiles that look like this. Ours look like this too. Our Gentile converts who aren't circumcised, they are loving their fellow Christians, both Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians. They're conforming themselves to the Bible. They're devoting themselves regularly to the worship of Jesus, to the prayer, to the breaking of bread, and to the apostles' teaching. And they are so concerned about being devoted to Jesus that they sent us here to find out if their devotion is missing this practice of circumcision. Because if it is, we'll do it. We want to follow Christ. In other words, their gospel ministry is bearing the fruit of love and unity and worship and devotion that can only be the product of the Holy Spirit being active among all of them. So there's the argument from experience. But Peter adds one more element as well. He doesn't just bring up what's being blessed. He also brings up what is unduly burdensome. So in verse 10, Peter adds this. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? Peter recognizes that any required practice of devotion carries with it some kind of burden. Some burdens are light, like the burden of regular prayer or weekly church attendance. Right? It's not that hard to do. Some burdens are heavy, like loving your enemy and praying for those who persecute you. Peter says circumcision represents a difficult burden that even we, Jewish Christians, haven't carried well. Why would we put it on Gentile Christians when their relationship with Jesus doesn't seem to need it? This is something that elders have to think about, and that has, this has actually been something that's been very important in Presbyterian history, which is keeping Christians from being burdened with things that God doesn't require. In our tradition, we call that the freedom of conscience. Peter is saying, let's keep our Gentile brothers and sisters' consciences free from constraints that Jesus doesn't seem to think that they need. 
So there's the argument from ex the experience of obvious Christian growth. There's the argument from the freedom of conscience, why require something that they haven't needed until now that God doesn't seem to require. There's two more arguments that we need to consider, both from James, and they're the biblical argument and what I would call the evangelistic or the argument for witness as well. So first, the biblical argument. So in verse 13, we read, After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me, Simon, who's Peter, when you're, when you're the uh, kind of the one of the original 12, you get to call Peter by his full like personal name, Simon. Simon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written, after this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. So here's what James is saying. He says that Peter's ministry to the Gentiles as being blessed shouldn't surprise us because it fits what God said he was going to do in Amos 9, 11 through 12, which is what James is quoting. And Amos says that the day will come when God will rebuild the tent of David so that Israel can live with God in security again. That means God will rebuild his people so that they will live with him in peace and in joy. And uh, clearly, Jesus is the one who rebuilds God's people, right? But Amos also says, God won't do that just for Jews, but for the nations, or as we've been calling them, the Gentiles, which is the Hebrew word for Gentiles is translated nations, almost always. That's just what it is, the same word. Now, how does Amos say that the Gentiles who seek the Lord will be included in David's tent? By having God's name called upon them. In Amos, God does not say, those who call upon my name, those who cry out to Jesus. Look at the end of verse 17. Some translations get this wrong, but this is what it says. God says, those who are called by my name, says the Lord, who are called by my name. And who are those who are called by God's name, who have God's name put on them? Those who are baptized. <clears throat> Baptism is where you get God's name put on you. And so James' point is that the Bible doesn't include Gentile Christians through circumcision. It includes them through baptism. Which is why Peter's and Paul and Barnabas' ministry to the Gentiles is blessed. They are conforming to God's word. Jesus is simply doing what he said he would do, making them a part of his people when they repent and believe and have his name called upon them. But then notice that James adds one more thing in verses 19 through 21. He says, therefore, verse 19, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled from the blood and from what has been strangled and from the blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he has read every Sabbath in the synagogues. We're running a little low on time, so let me just say 
And plus, I don't want to get in the weeds again. I do, but I don't. Um, so let me just say that the things James suggests for Gentiles to do, stay away from idolatry and sexual morality and to keep kosher, we'll talk about that in a second, that recommendation is also rooted in historic Jewish, Jewish practice of Gentile conversion. So in first century Judaism, another and more common way to conceive of Gentile conversion was to have them keep what they would sometimes call the Noahide laws. Deny idols, flee from sexual immorality, and keep kosher, but they don't need to be circumcised. And this seems to be, if you take the time to like read all the discussions on this back in the first century, both because keeping kosher is very visible, so it's, it's something that separates you from the surrounding world, but more especially, it also opened up communion with their Jewish brothers and sisters. So have you ever had any kind of dietary restriction? It can be awkward sometimes when you're at someone's house and you can't eat with them or they can't eat with you, right? There's a pragmatism, I think, in this requirement that was being recognized. Keeping kosher lets us eat freely together, which is a fundamental part of human community and especially of church community. Now from there, hearing that, notice what James says at the end. This is important. This is the reason why he says this. For or because from ancient generations, in other words, for a long time, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he has read every Sabbath in the synagogues. So here James recognizes that wherever Gentile Christians are right now, there will be Jewish synagogues. And he's probably also recognizing the fact, as we've talked about on and off before, that at this point in time, Christians worshipped Jesus in the synagogues, often alongside non-Messiah-believing Jews. So to put that together, I think we hear James, what James is saying. I think he's saying, look, there seems to be two reasons to want Gentile Christians to be circumcised. There's the conversion reason, and there's the community reason. We've already seen that conversion to Jesus doesn't require circumcision. In fact, it would be a burden to require it. Jesus doesn't do that. We shouldn't do that. But there's also clearly a community reason, which is how do we live respectfully in a community where not everyone shares our commitment to Jesus, but shares so much else? Well, why then don't we just have them do what by this point has been the standard way of showing respect to that community for at least 500 years? That's not overly burdensome. In fact, a lot of them were probably already doing it. And it's a blessing for witness to Jesus in the community we're located in. And that then brings us very quickly to our third point, which is the answer. So just to point out again, in verse 22, we're told that this solution seems good to the whole church, right? This council... This Presbytery General Assembly, they are speaking for the whole church, and so they sent off this letter to the churches, or as our translation has it, the congregations. So again, all the elders, all the congregations, the people, they're all the church. The institution is again working to grow discipleship and shape witness. And since this letter just reflects James's advice, uh, I'm not going to go through it verse by verse. I feel like we kind of already did that. I'm just going to make one comment on the letter and then one on its reception. 
So as far as the letter, I want you to see in verse 28 that they're concerned to lay an appropriate burden on the church. We're going to lay no greater burden than these on you. And that burden, except for the kosher part, which give me a second, we'll talk about that a bit more. I think that makes sense to us. I think it's important to say again that all forms of loyalty and worship to Jesus represent a burden of some kind. Because all forms of loyalty and love and worship require things of us, don't they? They require us to act in certain ways and at certain times and to refrain from certain actions. So the goal of elders working together to figure out how to follow Jesus now isn't to free us from all burdens, but to lay appropriate burdens on us for Jesus' sake, for our good, and for gospel witness. And in that light, notice the letter's reception. The church responded to this burden very well, better than I ever respond to burdens. In verse 31, we're told, And when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. Why do they view this letter as an encouragement? There's no attaboys in the letter, right? There's no, hey, you guys are doing great. Keep it up. Well, here's what I think. I think it's because for Christians, when you've been confused and anxious about how to live for Jesus on a certain issue, and then you get clarity, that's encouraging, and it gives you joy, because now you know how to make Jesus happy. And once you know the direction to go, you can walk by faith with confidence that Jesus will be pleased with you. That's encouraging. It gives you joy and encouragement. And so I want you to see the work of the institution here brought joy because it brought clarity to discipleship in such a way that it let the church live out of it for a long time by faith in ways that were helpful to them and to the surrounding community. Okay, so with that, let me offer just two concluding reflections. First, let me just talk about the keeping kosher thing for a second. Um, specifically, why don't we keep kosher now, right? Because if you're like me, when I first read this, you think, I'm not doing that. Should I be doing that? It seems like this is something I should be doing because this is something they told the churches to do. Why aren't we doing that now? Here's the answer. This is going to surprise you. We are not worshiping in a synagogue right now. Uh, We are not part of a community that is 99.995% Jewish. My friends, times change. And sometimes practices that had lots of value end up not having much value at all once context changes. Kosher for Gentile Christians was never an essential part of gospel belief. It was, as James explicitly says, a part of Gentile witness and showing respect to the community that they lived in. How do we live here in a way that doesn't poke people in the eye, but that lets them know that we care about them and still lets us bear witness to Jesus faithfully? When those communities, though, parted ways, that aspect of their witness and that aspect of our witness, that changed because there was no longer that need to do it.
And this is something that's also important for us to hear, especially Presbyterians. Uh, we Presbyterians are awesome at tradition, right? There's the, there's the old joke, how many Presbyterians does it take to change a light bulb? And the answer, well, there's several versions of this joke. But the one I'm telling is the answer is five, and you say why, because that's how many it's always taken. <laughs> but up, up. <laughs> we Presbyterians are awesome at tradition. I'm generally a big fan of tradition. But you can see here, even in the Bible, traditional practices that James himself and the church themselves used to create a solution to a division that they were having, right? No, you don't need to be circumcised, but we still need to figure out how do we live respectfully in this community. That just stopped being useful. And by the way, it stopped maybe being uh, useful as early as when John started to write his letters. So maybe about 50 years after the Jerusalem Council produced its, uh, its ruling. Which means then for us, it's okay to ask, is this practice still something Jesus wants us to do? Is this still something that Jesus is blessing and that makes him happy and that helps our community or not? And then to make changes that help us live well in the communities Jesus has placed us as faithful witnesses to Christ. Okay, finally, I also just want to point out that not only can uh, you see the church structures at work here, you can also see how they help shape and maintain the faith. So because of the church's institutional structures, questions about practice came to a resolution. Imagine if there was no appeal, if there wasn't a group of elders to ask. Think about that. Think about what happens in church fights where there's no other people you can bring in. What happens? The church just dies. It just blows up and dies, and you have 50 different versions of the same church all along down the street. Yeah, that, and you just go to the Midwest, the real Midwest, this Dakotas, Iowa, and you can see that that happens. <laughs> I just drive down the blocks I grew up on, and that's, that's how it is. Because of the church's institutional structures, Questions of practice came to a resolution. Godliness was grown. Peace was restored. Witness was blessed. And the entire church was able to move forward in the peace of Jesus. And the faith spread in a healthy way, as you can see from the rest of Acts. And that's our goal in setting up our church as Presbyterians. We want to kind of mirror the structure that we see here in Acts 15, so that together, when we're working well, as we pray Jesus will make us work well, the entire church can work together so that we can live faithfully for Jesus here as a church and all the churches of Jesus Christ. And so what I would ask you to do, my friends, is to not only give thanks that God cares enough about the longevity of his people that he gives institutional structures, but to pray for your elders, presbyteries, the General Assembly, that we would do our jobs well so that our church can live a united, peaceful life, that all the churches of Jesus can live a united, peaceful life, and that we can grow as witnesses to the gospel of Christ and grow in love for him and for one another. Amen? Let's pray. <clears throat>
Father, thank you for the institution of the church. And uh, we ask that you would please bless it so that it can achieve your goals of being a source of guidance and confusion, strength and difficulty, uh, comfort and sorrow. Uh, please bless it with an ever-growing conformity to your word and an ever-clearer vision of how you are working among us so that together your people will grow spiritually and your church, we pray, will grow numerically because we are united in faithfully following you. And please help us here at Grace to be a part of that growing faithfulness. And we ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.